All right, if you're able to locate a Bible, please do track one down and get with me on page 927. We're in John chapter 14. If you grab a Bible from the book rack, we'll be on page 927. We're in John chapter 14, and we're looking at the final lessons that the Lord gave to his disciples before his departure. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 14, and we'll pray, and we will get to work. We'll also put verses up on the screen can track along that way as well. This is John 14, starting in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking right now as we've opened your word, we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us. Lord, we pray that you would shape and mold us into a people that live for your glory, that understand what you've done for us in your departure and your going to the cross and in your death, burial, and resurrection, and help us then to realize that you have made a way of salvation and you have enlisted us to do works in your name. Help us to believe that, please. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the section of Scripture has been called a lot of different things. We're calling it Final Lessons. These are, the depart- these are the words that the Lord is giving to his disciples before his departure. He understands, chapter 13, I believe, verse 3, where he says his hour has come for his departure. He knows he's leaving. And he gathers his disciples together, and he gives them a string of teachings to help them understand what life will be like in light of the departure and what they need to do in his absence. And so today we find three things here, a word of comfort, the way of salvation, and a new vocation. A word of comfort, the way of salvation, and a new vocation. The word of comfort starts in verse 1. He says to the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled, which, in, which implies their hearts are about to be incredibly troubled. It is possible for them to experience the troubling of fear and anxiety and uncertainty. And he's saying to them, 
do not let your hearts be troubled. But there is so much that is about to trouble them. If you think with me about what's going on in the context, you've got these disciples who are following the Lord and they have all sorts of expectations for him of what he is and what he's going to do and what this means for the people of God. They believe him to be the Messiah and they expect then a renewal of the people of God. They live in a situation where the government is opposed to their religious freedoms. They live in a situation where shortly they will find out that not only the government is against their ability to express their commitment to God, but also their kinsmen. And they will find that the way that God is calling them to live will actually be in opposition to the Jews, uh, brothers and sisters who now will be hostile toward them. There's an awful lot to be troubled by. Not only that, if you're thinking about what will happen over the next few days, they are about to watch their leader, who has just been betrayed, be handed over, arrested, carted off, tried, and executed. And when that happens, it will feel so devastating that they will feel that they lost everything. They had given up their, their vocation. Some of them have left businesses to be in this situation. They have left family to spend these few years with the Lord, following him around and participating in his ministry. And all of that is going to come to a screeching halt momentarily. And even still, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And we maybe feel it like this. Are you kidding me? They're for sure going to be troubled. So how on earth are they going to calm their hearts from anxiety and fear and uncertainty and even the feeling of devastation and loss? Well, he says in verse 1, you believe in God, believe also in me. Just like you've placed your hope in the living God, just like you believe the promises of God will come true, he says, trust me. You believe in God, believe also in me. And we're going to see how he makes that connection here in just a moment. But he's basically saying to his disciples, this will be hard, trust me. And he says, here's how you can be comforted. He says in verse 2, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? He draws their attention heavenward. He says, my father's house is, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and there are plenty of spaces available. He, he draws their attention heavenward. Now, they're probably not, as I was thinking this week, they're probably not sitting around going, I wonder what heaven's like, you know, because in, on the immediate horizon is just trouble. It's difficulty, it's pain, it's loss, it's crisis. But he says, do not, do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm preparing a place for you. Now, we have all kinds of songs and all kinds of preachers and all kinds of material around this verse, speculating as to what that's like, the big, big house, and God, you know, God is creating this place for us, and it's got all these different rooms and things like that. Don't miss the point that Jesus is suggesting here, the main thing that he's communicating here. And obviously, commentators and others have speculated on all these different things, the main thing to understand is the Lord is saying, I am preparing a place for you and I to dwell together permanently for all of eternity. I'm preparing a place with plenty of rooms. My father's house has many rooms. I've got three brothers. All of us are married. All of us have kids. When we try to do a family vacation and we do a verbo or, you know, we rent a house, it's challenging because to find a, a space with that many places for everybody is a difficult thing. My, my uncle has a cabin up north, and um, when we first started going up there and we were kids, you know, it had two bedrooms in there, and all of us would show up, and you'd just be like, 
here's your spot. This is your place for hanging out at the cabin. And then my uncle rebuilt it, and it has you know, all kinds of different space in there. But that's the point that's being made. Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and, and there will be a spot there for you. And I wouldn't tell you this if it were not so, but I am going to prepare a place for you. And actually, his going is the preparation of the place. My friend Mickey Klink from Hope Church in Roscoe, in his commentary, he puts, puts it like this. The cross, resurrection, and ascension to the Father is the preparation, the provision of permanent dwelling with God. What he is doing here, even though they won't apprehend it at first, his, his arrest, his execution, his burial, then his resurrection and ascension, what he is doing is actually the preparation for them to be with God for forever. So he is preparing a place, and that preparation comes through the cross work that he is about to perform. But he's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Set your mind on the reality that I am making a spot for you and I to be together forever. Set your mind on heaven. And if you do that, it puts everything else in its place. If you learn how to relate to God by thinking about what it will be like to experience glory, it will help you to live faithfully in the here and now. We, we discerned this as a church several months ago when we saw a pattern where we recognized the gospel paradigm is this. It is suffering first, glory to follow. Suffering comes on the immediate horizon, and often it feels devastating, but we know that glory is coming. And if we are able to place our faith in the glory, it helps us in the suffering. If we're able to think ahead to what it's going to be like to be permanently with God, living with Jesus Christ himself, then all of a sudden the trouble that we go through feels more manageable. It feels like something we can na navigate and manage. So he's calling us to be heavenly-minded. Now, you might think, well, that just sounds weird, and actually, you know, people who do this are pretty, you know, they've got their head in the clouds. They're just thinking about, you know, what it's going to be like to be with God, and they just, they're, they, they're not connected to the real world that we live in. And there's a concern there. There's an author named C.S. Lewis, and you guys probably know him from uh, his, his children's stories, but the nonfiction work that is the most prominent of his works is called Mere Christianity. And in there, he interacts with this idea. And it's such a good section I wanted to share with you an extended quote. He's dealing with the fact that a lot of people will look at those who are thinking about heaven and go, yeah, they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. They're just thinking about heaven, and they've retreated from the world because they're just waiting for Jesus to come and retrieve them. And he says, that's not actually how it works. This is Lewis now, and this is his quote from Mere Christianity. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Thinking ahead to that glory of heaven and all that it has in store for us is something that we are meant to do as believers. He goes on to say it like this. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world 
that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Lewis, I think, is right on. He's following the teaching of the Lord that says, don't let your heart be troubled. Think about the heavenly dwelling that you will inherit. Think about heaven, and it will actually help you navigate life here in a way that is productive and effective. But to fail to do so actually puts you at a disadvantage. So Jesus is saying, don't let your heart be troubled. Think about heaven and think about what it'll be like to be with me. Look at verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And this is the goal of heaven. This is the goal of heaven. I've shared this quote before, so it's not worth repeating at length here, but Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, talks about if you could have heaven and all of its benefits without Jesus there, what would you say? And the answer we have to say is absolutely not. He is it. He says, I'm preparing a place for you and I to be together forever. So into the anxiety of the human experience of loss and disappointment and pain, the Lord says, here's a word of comfort for you. I am preparing a place for you and I to be together. And that is a beautiful thing. And if we believe it and place our faith in it, it actually makes us a people who are unshakable. As the apostles came to be that, as they would go through difficulty and pain and all these different things, but they have a resilience about them because they believe in the promises of God coming true. So Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you, and now he's going to tell them the way to get there. He says, verse 4, this is the second point that we have here, a way of salvation. Verse 4 says, you know the way to the place where I am going. Now, in fairness, they do know, but they are so confused by the conversation that's happening that they're having trouble understanding what he's talking about. He says, you know the way to the place that I'm talking about, the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas says, honestly, I don't think we do because we don't know where you're going, so how could we imagine how to get there? If we don't know where you're heading, how are we supposed to find you? Verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? But Jesus says to them, verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. Huh. Now what he's doing, if you're a parent, you've done this before, I'm sure of it, he is helping them to realize what they actually do and don't know. So when Harrison comes to me and goes, Dad, where's my soccer ball? I can tell him exactly where it is, or I can say, you tell me. Because you know, you're the one that was playing with it, you put it where it is, um, you know, I could tell him, it's in the basement. You brought it down there, you were kicking it around, you left it down there. Or I could say, he says, Dad, where's my soccer ball? And I say, you tell me. Because now he, it's on him to figure out, where did I leave this thing? In the same way, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And they go, mm, we're not sure that we do. And he says, you do. And you'll, you'll get it here in just a moment. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas says, well, I don't, I don't think we do. We don't know where you're going. How could we know the path to get there? And Jesus gives the most profound of answers here in verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's this radical statement that the Lord gives us to help us understand. If we want to understand how to, how to inherit 
eternity, if we want to understand how to experience life with God forever, if we want to understand what it means to be saved or forgiven, Jesus tells us here, the way to that is him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is the essence of Christianity. This is something that we want to be incredibly clear on, and I hope that everyone in here understands the simplicity, but the glory of what's being described here. The way to experience forgiveness of sins and the prospect of life together with God is through Jesus Christ alone. And if somebody were to ask you, how do you get into heaven? How do you get to heaven? The answer is very simple. It is Jesus Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel. And that is what we try to communicate around here so that all of us are very clear on it. Because honestly, I've asked a lot of people, how could you be given access into glory? How could you get into the heavenly city, as John Bunyan puts it in his, in his work, Pilgrim's Progress? How could you get to the heavenly city and then be allowed in? And um, in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a dude named Ignorance who thinks, well, I'll get in, you know, because, because of whatever. Like, I'll get in. It's fine. And he actually climbed over the fence. He didn't go in through the way that was appointed to come onto the way of the path of going to the heavenly city. And Christian had a problem with that. He's like, I don't, I don't think that's going to work out for you, buddy. And then you get to the very end of the book, and what happens to ignorance? Though he's at the, the gates of heaven, the celestial city, he's carried away from there. So if I were to ask you, how do you get into heaven? How do you inherit this place that has been prepared? How, how, do you, how would you know that you can confidently get into heaven? A lot of people might say things like this. Well, I'm a good person, so I hope that that would be in consideration. Or I go to church, or I do a lot of Christian things. The actual answer, according to Scripture, is this. The way that anyone is permitted access into the heavenlies is Jesus Christ. It is him. It is faith in him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And this reminds us, this shows us, this is an exclusive invitation. The way of salvation is Jesus Christ. He's not a way. He's not one of several options to get in. He is the way. The apostles came to believe that and teach that. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and and John, in this case, they, they say things like this. Peter says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He says, it's Jesus. That's it. So when people are saying, stop talking about him, and we've thrown you in prison once, we'll do it again. You gotta you gotta stop this thing. And Peter and John say, we can't. Because he is salvation. Everywhere everywhere we go, we're going to talk about him. We can't help it. Salvation is found in no one else. Or 1 Timothy 2, this is Paul. He says, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. There is one way of salvation, and Jesus makes it very plain. It is him. And those who trust in him experience his saving work. Now, this is an offensive teaching if you like the, the thought that you should have lots of options. If you think, you know, let, let, lots of people can come up to different conclusions as to how to get into heaven. It, it, it's exclusive. It's an exclusive invitation that God has made for us to receive him by faith and to experience his saving work. The, the gate is narrow, to borrow language from another passage. The gate is narrow. 
but it is wide enough that anyone who wants to can walk through it. The gate may be narrow, but it is wide enough that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ can walk through his saving work. You can experience the saving work of Christ by trusting in him. Now, he goes on to explain why this works. Jesus is the way because Jesus is God. Look at verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, there's obvious confusion here because the disciples are like, God is invisible, and we've not seen him. We can't see him. So what do you mean we've seen him? And so then Philip just makes a request. Okay, show us. Like, that'll be enough. That'd, make, that'd satisfy us here. Show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. We don't really know what's going on here, dude, so I don't know. Just make it plain. Just show us. You know, just like Moses prayed, show me your glory. Philip's saying to Jesus, hey, why don't you just show us what you're talking about? We don't, we're, we're not totally getting this, but if you were to show us the Father, that would be enough for us. And Jesus rebukes him and the disciples because this should be obvious to them. Look at verse 9. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is wild. This is Trinitarian theology. Jesus is saying, I, I am the expression of the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Don't you know me? You've been with me all these years. And, and haven't you realized by now that you have seen through me, you have seen the glory of the Father, Jesus is saying. Well, this is the, the message of John's letter uh, and something that he came to believe in wholeheartedly. He believed Jesus is God. In fact, in the prologue, as he opens up his uh, account of the life and ministry of Jesus in John chapter 1, John puts it like this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Who's he talking about? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, and he's saying he is God. He goes on to put it like this in the prologue in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus has made, made known the Father. So Jesus is saying, Philip, I know you're slow, and I'm so appreciative of the slowness of the disciples because it just puts us in good company here. They were slow to believe this, but Jesus says, I've been with you long enough that this one, this one should be plain to you. If you've watched me, you have seen the Father. And he tells them why. The words and the works that he performed were the words and works of the Father. Verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So he's saying what I have been doing, the stuff I've been communicating, the, the things that I've been performing, all of that has been the work of God in and through him. And then he says, believe. Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Look, look at the proof, he's saying. You, you have been with me all these years. You should know that I and the Father are one. Because you've seen me, you have seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? You've seen me, Jesus is saying. So Jesus is telling us, don't let your hearts be troubled. Here's a word of comfort. I'm preparing a place for you. And then he tells us, here's the way to it. Jesus says, I am the way. You come to me in faith, you receive the work that I perform for you, and you can gain access into the glories of heaven. But that's not all. It's, it's even better. Now, that's a lot, and that's plenty, right? To be able to say, okay, I'm going to check a couple boxes today. One, I can be comforted in the midst of a troubling life. Wonderful. Check that one. Also, I can uh, experience heaven itself because of what Jesus is doing. I'm going to heaven. Check that one. But that's not all. He doesn't say, that's good enough. So why don't you just wait? Just hang tight. You know, I'll come and get you soon enough. No, he actually says, also, because of that, I'm going to start using you. You have a new vocation. Look at, uh, verse, look at verse 12. He says, I'm going to give you this new vocation. Verse 12, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So, so verse 12, he says, in English, it says, very truly, I tell you. But it's a, it's a phrase that is basically like, this one's going to blow your socks off. What I'm about to tell you is insane, right? This is wild. Jesus is saying, very truly, I tell you, anyone who believes in me, the stuff we've been talking about, receiving this way of salvation, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. What? So anyone who follows the Lord, who trusts in him, he says, they're going to do what I've been doing. They're going to maintain my ministry. They're going to, be, they're going to do the works that I've been doing. In other words, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not just that you hang tight and wait for heaven. He says, you're on my team, and I'm departing. So here's something you need to know. In my, in my physical absence, in my bodily absence, you're me. You're going to do my ministry. You're going to carry this thing forward. You're going to do the works that I've been doing. And in fact, you're going to do greater works than these things. That's wild. Because I, I know myself. And if he looks at any, so, so I can only, you know, evaluate my own heart, but I, I can also make some pretty, pretty sound judgments of other people. I look at us and I go, this is your team. You're leaving and you're putting it in, in our hands that we're going to, we're going to do your ministry. I don't know. I don't know if that's a great idea, but that's what Jesus says. I'm about to depart, and I'm going to prepare a place, and if you believe in me, you will actually be on my team, and I'm going to deploy you to do my ministry. You're going to do my work, and even greater works than he has done in his earthly ministry. That, now, that, that's incredible. But he says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, so he's going to, these are not divorced things, like, we're doing this apart from Christ. He says, no, it's in him. And then he tells us the reason why we're able to do even greater things than him, verse 12 at the end there, because I am going to the Father. So the reason why we're able to take on this high calling is not because we're so great, but because he's going to equip us for the task. I am going to my Father, and as he will teach throughout these final lessons, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to equip and empower us to do ministry. But this is wild, and this is an, really, in my opinion, even in my own ministry, it's an underdeveloped teaching. Ordinary believers 
get to be the hands and feet of the Lord in this world. He, he enlists us to be his representatives. Remember back chapter 13, he says, whoever accepts you accepts me. He authorizes us to act on his behalf. We become the agents of his grace. And he says, if you believe in me, you have a new vocation. You're, you are me in the world. In, in light of my departure, you're the plan. What a wild plan. But he tells us, if this is going to be effective, you're going to need this special tool, prayer. Look at verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You're going to do my works, even greater works than were able to be performed in his limited earthly ministry, limited in time and space. Now the age of the church, this is why it's greater. It's the, it's the age of the church. It's the age of the people of God going all over the place with the message of God's saving work in Christ. And he says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He's saying, okay, guys, you're in. I'm placing you in. You're not on the bench anymore. You're not watching these things unfold. You're key. You're instrumental in this. Here's your walkie-talkie. You're going to need this thing because you're going to need to talk to me, and I'm going to answer these prayers on your behalf. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then verse 14, you may ask me, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Because now you're on mission. You, you are living out the ministry of Christ in real time. And he's saying, and, and so you're, you're going, it's going to be instinctual and it's going to be desperate, but you're going to pray. And guess what? I'm on the other end. So it's going to be okay. I'm going to equip and empower you to do the, the works in my name that will result in people coming to saving faith. I have in my office, I've got these laminated cards from when I was first doing children's ministry as a volunteer. And these young people gave their lives to Christ. That was so radical to me because I had no business being a part of anything that happened there. But God did this incredible work, and I'm just a spectator. But I was instrumental in that because I was sharing the good news of the gospel to these young hearts and minds. God is going to use you to perform his ministry in this world. And that any of us get to be a part of it is, is sheer grace and privilege. But he will equip us to do the ministry that he's calling us to. That's one of the reasons why as a church we've organized as a missional church. Meaning we, we really do believe that most of the exciting ministry will happen away from this building. That what we believe is that we gather to be encouraged and to open the word and to be reminded of who we are in Christ and what he's enlisting us to do, but then, but then we leave, and that's a good thing. We scatter, and we actually go to a lot of different places. We think through, where do people live? Where do they work? What do they do during the week? We're only here for an hour and a half, but then we go away and we spend all of our time elsewhere, and Jesus is saying, yeah, that's the plan. These are my people and they're deputized in my name. Whoever accepts them accepts me. They go out with their walkie-talkies of prayer, and I'm going to answer their prayers, and they're going to make my name known everywhere. And we go to our workplaces, and we go to our campuses, our school campuses, and we go to the places that we recreate. We go to all these different places, and we are the representatives of Jesus Christ. And he says, so talk to me about it, because I'm going to answer those prayers, and I'm going to help you. And honestly, we're going to feel that, right? Lord, I'm about to talk to a coworker who is hostile to Christianity. 
I don't have the words. Help. He's like, Roger 10, 4, I'm on this one. I can soften the heart. I can open the ears. I, I will help you, and I will be glorified in this. So he takes us. This is wild. And he says, you are going to be used by me. You have a new vocation, a new high calling, and it is a beautiful thing. So what has the Lord taught us here? Life in a fallen world is troubling. It's hard. It's difficult. There are things that are disappointing everywhere that we look. But don't let your heart be troubled because the Lord has prepared a place for you and I to be with him for forever. And the way there is him. It's as simple as him. We place our faith in him and we experience his saving work and we have the hope of glory that that one day he will come to take us to be where he is forever. And then he says, in the meantime, you've got a job to do. You're me. In my absence, you act on my behalf. You are my hands and feet. You are my mouthpiece in this world. Here's your walkie-talkie of prayer. Go out and make my name known everywhere. Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now that you would fill us with your spirit. Often we feel like the disciples, absolutely confused by what you're doing. Just on a, what feels like a totally different page, Lord, would you, by your spirit, right now, help us to see the incredible things that you have communicated to us today. Help us to recognize the saving work of Jesus Christ that he, by his death, burial, and resurrection, has opened up a way for us to be saved. Help everyone who can hear my voice to believe that truth and to receive it by faith. And then, Lord, having believed in him, help us to be his hands and feet in this world. Let us go out deputized to make known the greatness of our king for his glory. Amen.